Hey everyone, this is Rob. This episode was originally recorded in February of 2023. We've edited this one down to just include Jeremy and I talking about Buddy Holly. Today marks the 65th anniversary of the day the music died. So if you've heard this particular podcast before, maybe give it another listen. And if you haven't, we hope you enjoy it. So here it is, from the archives, Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly, uh, his real name was Charles Hardin Holly, and it was spelled H-O-L-L-E-Y. And he was born on September 7th, 1936 in Lubbock, Texas. And he was the fourth child of Lawrence Odell L.O. Holly. They called him L.O. And Ella Pauline Drake. So he had uh, siblings Larry, Travis, and Patricia Lou. Okay. And from early childhood, he, ha- he did have the name of Buddy. Now, his family did have an interest in music. All his family members except his father were able to play an instrument or sing. And the elder Holly brothers performed in local talent shows. And on one occasion, Buddy joined them on violin. And he could not play it, so his brother Larry greased the bow so it wouldn't make any sound. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he's just mimicking playing the violin. And then during World War II, Larry and Travis were called to military service. And when Larry returned, he brought with him a guitar he had bought from a shipmate while serving in the Pacific. And then at age 11, Buddy took piano lessons but abandoned them after nine months. He switched to the guitar after he saw a classmate playing and singing on the school bus. And then his parents eventually bought him a steel guitar, but he insisted he wanted a guitar like his brother's. And then his parents bought him a guitar from a pawn shop and his brother Travis taught him how to play. So then uh, Buddy went to Roscoe Wilson Elementary, and he became friends with Bob Montgomery. And the two started playing together, practicing songs. And they would uh, listen to radio programs like the Grand Old Opry, Louisiana Hayride, and stuff like that. And at the same time, uh, Buddy would play with other musicians he met in high school including Sonny Curtis and Jerry Allison. And in 1952, Buddy and Jack Neal participated as a duo billed as Buddy and Jack in a talent contest. In 1952, Buddy Holly made his first appearance on television. And the following year, he formed the group Buddy and Bob with his friend Bob Montgomery. Now, in 1955, after opening for Elvis Presley, uh, he decided to pursue a career in music. So I guess Elvis was a big influence on, on Buddy. Now, he opened for Elvis three times that year. Now, this was uh, early on in Elvis's career. And it might have been like the Louisiana Hayride. I think I recall, you know, these small shows, outdoor shows. And his band shifted from country and western to entirely rock and roll. And in October of that year... In 55, he opened for Bill Haley and his Comets, and he was spotted by Nashville scout Eddie Crandall, who helped him get a contract with Decca Records. So that's the beginnings of, you know, his career. So one thing led to another, and it helps a little bit, I guess, opening for Elvis. 
But like I said, Elvis, I, I don't know, in 55, Elvis, was, I, don't, I don't know when Elvis broke, you know, broke out. <laughs> Crandall persuaded Grand Old Opry manager Jim Denny to seek a recording contract for Holly. They sent a demo tape, which Denny forwarded to Paul Cohen, who signed the band to Decca Records in February 1956. Now, in the contract, uh, Decca misspelled Buddy Holly's last name as H-O-L-L-Y. Mm-hmm. And from then on, he was known as Buddy Holly. That's spelling instead of his, you know, the real spelling of his name. January 26, 1956, Holly attended his first formal recording session, which was produced by Owen Bradley. He attended two more sessions in Nashville, and Holly became increasingly frustrated by the lack of creative control. Now, I watched the Buddy Holly story with Gary Busey, <laughs> and you'll see where he... And I know a lot of stuff in that movie is, you know, is fabricated. Maybe, yeah, fabricated. But Buddy really wanted, he, Buddy was one of the first producers of his own music. Mm-hmm. You know, these record companies had their own producers and they kind of wanted to sway you in different directions, maybe something you didn't want to do. And I noticed the early songs were kind of, they wanted him to do more country. They didn't know what he was like with the rock and roll, it was fairly new, that style of right. playing guitar. You can't imagine like what first hearing that music, like new, like what is this? Right. The fast, you know, chord changes, just the, I don't know. It was, it was a little bit more hectic than, you know, country song. Mm-hmm. So in April 56, Decca released Blue Days, Black, Black Nights as a single. Also, a single, Modern Don Juan, <laughs> and neither single made an impression. So, on January 22nd, 57, Decca informed Holly his contract would not be renewed, but insisted he could not record the same songs for anyone else for five years. Oh, jeez. But Buddy Holly, like I said, if you, if you haven't heard him, he, he didn't live very long, and he wrote over 200 songs. Now, he, he started writing songs when he was 15, but not, you know, man, they weren't that good. But just this period where he, you know, just a short period of time, let's say four years, three years, he wrote over 200 songs. I've listened to a lot of Buddy Holly, and I have to say that most of his songs I, I like. They kind of have the same, a lot of his songs are like three, four chords. Right. But it's just the way he's playing, the way his band's playing. Around, I think before this, I think when he got the contract, he might have had the band, he had the band The Crickets, uh, which were uh, Allison, Holly, and Malden. But again, he was unhappy with DECA and lost the contract. So to, together with Allison bassist Joe B. Malden, rhythm guitarist Nicky Sullivan, he went to Clovis, New Mexico to record with Norman Petty, who produced and promoted uh, some successful songs at the time, which was Party Dial. And I'm Sticking With You, which I guess were two hit songs. So the group recorded a demo of That'll Be The Day, <laughs> which is one of his, you know, most famous songs. And he previously recorded this in Nashville. Uh, but now he was playing lead guitar and he finally got the sound he desired that he wanted. Uh, Petty became his manager and he sent the record to Brunswick Records in New York City. So Holly was still under contract with Decca, and he could not release the record under his name. 
So this is where the crickets come in. So a band name was used, and Allison proposed the name Crickets. Brunswick Records gave Buddy a basic agreement to release That'll Be the Day, leaving him with both artistic control and financial responsibility for future recordings. So Petty and Holly, Petty the manager, later learned that Brunswick was a subsidiary of DECA, (laughs) the, the record company that released him. Right. And they legally cleared future recordings under the name Buddy Holly. Uh, recordings credited to the crickets would be released on Brunswick. And then the recordings under Holly's name were released on another subsidiary label, Coral Records. And he concurrently held a recording contract with both labels. But it's weird that this one Brunswick was owned by DECA. So That'll Be the Day was released on May 27th, 1957. And encouraged by the single success, uh, Petty started to prepare two album releases, a solo album for Holly and another for the Crickets. On August 26th, uh, Buddy Holly appeared on American Bandstand. And before they left New York, uh, they became friends with the Everly Brothers. So that'll be the day topped the U.S. bestsellers in stores on September 23rd and was number one on the U.K. singles charts for three weeks in November. And then September 20th, uh, Coral released Peggy Sue, uh, backed with Every Day. And then by October, Peggy Sue had reached number three on Billboard's pop chart and number two on the R&B chart. Now, I remember from the movie, they originally thought Buddy Holly was black. <laughs> and when he went on tour, he went on tour with all these other bands. I think they were black bands. It's sad, but they... They couldn't stay in the same hotel as Buddy Holly. And Mike and I talked to Little Anthony, and Little Anthony was on one of the tours, which is incredible. That is awesome. (laughs) He was literally on a bus. He became friends with Buddy Holly. Wow. Yeah. So then in October, Brunswick released the second single, which was Oh Boy, and the single reached number 10 on the pop chart and 13 on the R&B chart. Buddy Holly and the Crickets performed That'll Be the Day and Peggy Sue on the Ed Sullivan Show on December 1st, 1957. Uh, But following the appearance, Nicky Sullivan left the group because he was tired of the intensive touring and he wanted to resume his education. Now um, we're going to talk a little bit about Maria Elena, which was Buddy Holly, eventually his wife. And in 1958, he met Maria. She was working at the offices of Peer Southern. Uh, He asked her out on their first meeting and proposed marriage to her on their first date. Wow. And the wedding took place on August 15th. Now, Holly's manager, he did not like that they were getting married. Uh, He advised Buddy to keep it secret to avoid upsetting Holly's female fans. (laughs) I remember this happened with the Beatles, with John Lennon. John Lennon was, nobody knew he was married. Right. I guess they had a big, I know the Beatles had a huge female fan base, buying tickets to the shows. And I guess if you, if you know the person's married, you're just not going to go to the concert. I don't know. <laughs> like, like you're going to ever meet this person? I don't know. When Petty suggested, Norman Petty suggested this, it it started to create friction with Buddy Holly. Uh, And he started to question 
his bookkeeping. The Crickets were also frustrated with Petty. He controlled all the proceeds earned by the band. So Maria Elena accompanied Buddy Holly on his tours. And to hide their marriage, she was presented as the Crickets' secretary. Oh, wow. (laughs) Uh, She took care of the laundry and equipment set up and collected the concert revenues. There you go. She ended up keeping the money for the band instead of transferring it to the manager, uh, it says in New Mexico. Maria (laughs) Elena uh, and her aunt, she was an executive in the Latin American music department at, oh, at Pier Southern. There you go. She convinced Buddy that his manager was paying the band's royalties from Coral Brunswick, the two record companies, into his own company's account. So Buddy planned to retrieve his royalties from his manager and to later fire him as the manager and producer. So he ended his association in December 1958, and his band members kept Petty as their manager, and they split from Buddy Holly. And then Buddy Holly decided to settle permanently in New York, uh, where the business and publishing offices were. And then Norman Petty was holding money from the royalties, and it forced Buddy Holly to form a new band and return to touring. Buddy Holly, uh, on October 21st, 1958, he had his final studio session. It was recorded at Pythian Temple on West 70th Street, which is now a luxury condominium, by the way. (laughs) And this is known to fans as the String Sessions. Uh, He recorded four songs for choral, Uh, In an innovative collaboration with Dick Jacobs Orchestra, it's an 18-piece ensemble composed of former members of the NBC Symphony Orchestra, including saxophonist Boomy Richmond. The four songs that were recorded uh, were True Love Ways, Moon Dreams, Raining in My Heart, which I love. I love that song. And it, It Doesn't Matter Anymore, which was actually written by Paul Anka. And then from November to December 1958, uh, Buddy planned on building his own studio in Lubbock and purchased land there. Before moving to New York, he formed his own record company, Prism Records, and publishing company. However, financial matters weren't that good. In spite of uh, much negotiating, uh, Norman Petty refused to give Buddy any funds. So Buddy was um, pretty much broke, and he needed money. And he contacted an old friend, Irving Feld, uh, for whom he had toured with many times in the past, and he asked him to put together a tour for him. Now, also citing the, mu- the movie um, Buddy Holly's story, Buddy, Buddy just wanted to, like these last four songs, I guess they were going to, he was working on a new album. The Crickets recorded one album, and Buddy recorded two solo albums. The only albums he's record, he recorded. Right. So I think he was working on a third one, and he wanted to just stay at home and, I guess, you know, start raising a family. He didn't want to tour. But he, his former manager, can you imagine, is holding money, pretty much forces him to go on this tour. So Buddy and uh, Maria... Elena spent Christmas in Lubbock uh, with Holly's family, and Buddy put together a band while he was there. Now we're talking 1958. 
On December 30th, uh, Buddy traveled to Odessa to hire session guitarist Tommy Alsup and drummer Carl Bunch uh, for the tour. Now, his bass player was an old friend, and perhaps you've heard this name before, and his name was Wailing Jennings. Yeah. So Buddy basically discovered Wailing Jennings, Okay. believe it or not. Hmm. And at this time, uh, Wailing Jennings had never played the electric bass before. So I guess he played guitar, but he wanted him as the bass player. So now we're in the January 59. Alsop, Jennings, and Bunch arrive in New York to stay with Buddy at his apartment for a few days to practice music. They'll soon be performing on the tour. And Buddy cuts the now famous apartment tapes on a portable Ampex tape machine. (laughs) And most of the tracks are just him and his Gibson acoustic guitar. Now I'm going to pause for a minute because I want to talk about the, this Ampex tape machine because the late lead singer of the Smithereens, Pat Denizio, I'm pretty sure this is the tape player that he owned. So I want to talk about that. I have a friend, his name is Todd Sinclair. He knows about basically everything about the Smithereens. He was really good friends with Pat. And this is his message to me on Facebook. He said... Pat purchased Buddy Holly's tape recorder from an auction house in West Sotheby's. Uh, he stored it in the corner of his dining room of his house in Scotch Plains for many years until he had Sotheby's put it back on auction for him. Now, Pat bought this for like, I think it was 14000 I think. And he had to take out a loan. But Pat loved Buddy Holly. He wore glasses like Buddy Holly. So this is a story in itself because um, Sotheby's couldn't get a good price for the tape player. So when Pat went to get the tape player back, it turned out to be a different tape recorder than the one, one he gave them to sell. Right. He says a lot of fishy stuff was going on. Uh, Pat thought maybe someone stole it, and then maybe Sotheby's tried to replace it with a fake to try to cover it up. But I don't think this tape player has ever resurfaced. That's what's... <laughs> Weird, you know. Okay, so Pat got his story about Sotheby's in the New York Post, page six, gossip, col- gossip column, right? The gossip column. Nice. <laughs> yeah. This is the, so this was from the New York Post. It was an article, and it's from August 1999. Uh, also, I was, I've been at Pat's house. His house is no longer there, but when he had his concerts, because of the year of this, I, I realized I never saw the tape play. I remember he had a little, he had a curio cabinet with some collectibles in it, but it would have been cool to see it. So this article is from August 28th, 99. Title of the article is Buddy Holly Artifact Going, Going Lost. <laughs> it says, if it were Picasso, there would be hell to pay. But Sotheby's, the esteemed auction house, admits it lost the late rock legend Buddy Holly's tape recorder and offered to pay full replacement cost only after getting calls from the post. Uh, they said, we handle hundreds of thousands of items safely. This time something went wrong. We're really sorry. <laughs> right? Uh, but that wasn't good enough for Pat Denizia, the lead singer of the Smithereens. Nor ni- should it be. <laughs> no. In 1990, he bought the old Ampex reel-to-reel, the machine that captured Holly's hits as that That'll be the day, Peggy Sue, and not fade away. 
because this is the tape recorder Buddy would, when he was working out songs, would record onto. He actually bought this from Sotheby's for $15,300. And then he sent the machine back to them in 1996. So this article is three years later. Uh, there were no takers for this. So, And because Pat was on tour with his band at the time, he asked the auction house to store the recorder until the end of the tour in 1997. He said, I was assured by Sotheby's it would be in their safekeeping at their warehouse. So when I was finally off the road, I called them to get the recorder and they told me it was missing. This is a little different than I think uh, my friend said with uh, him getting a box or getting a delivery. This is probably more accurate, but uh, oh no, wait a minute. Sometime later. Okay, here we go. They thought (laughs) I'm getting ahead of myself. They thought they found it. I was very excited when uh, this giant shipping crate arrived. I mean, how big was this recorder? Right. <laughs> giant shipping crate. It's, it's like uh, in the Christmas uh, story. Fragile. Yeah. <laughs> when he cracked open the crate. Oh, there could, there could be anything in there. He discovered Sotheby's had sent the wrong machine. Maybe they forgot. Well, it's in there. It's got to be in there. An antique recorder but a much larger model than the one that he bought. He said they don't even look alike. Uh, Sotheby's acknowledged the recorder in Denizio's possession isn't his, and the house doesn't know where his buddy Holly recorder is. Further complicating the matter, Sotheby's doesn't know whose recorder was shipped to Pat Denizio. <laughs> he said Sotheby's offered him $7,500, then 10000 But after the post called the auction house to get a comment, Sotheby's upped its offer to 15000 My friend Tom told me that Pat actually got more than that then. He ended up getting more than that. So that, that's, that's an odd thing right there. So now we're back, Buddy Holly's apartment, <laughs> January 1959. Uh, so Tommy uh, Alsup does some guitar work and tries to teach Wailing the fundamentals of bass. Carl Bunch practices diligently to get Jerry Allison's drum work uh, down pat because they're replacing, of course, the crickets, right. these people. Now, this is a little odd, but both Buddy and Maria have nightmares the night before Buddy leaves for Chicago. Doesn't say what, but, and Buddy is reluctant to leave his wife, who is now expecting their first child. Uh, she begs to go on tour, but Buddy says no. So the next day, Buddy, Tommy, Whalen, and Carl ride a train to Chicago, and there they meet other acts for a rehearsal before taking off by bus for the first stop on, it's called the Winter Dance Party, and it was January 23rd, 1959 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's where it started. So a little bit about the Winter Dance Party is the amount of travel involved created logistical problems. The distance between the venues had not been considered when scheduling performances. And adding to the problem, the unheated tour bus twice broke down in freezing weather with dire consequences. Holly's drummer, Carl Bunch, he was hospitalized with frostbite to his toes. Oh, my God. Which he got on the bus. Because wow. I guess there was no heat. Oh, well, and there's no GPS. There's no MapQuest. There's no... <laughs> yeah. Buddy decided to seek other transportation. So on February 2nd, uh, before their appearance in Clear Lake, Iowa... Uh, Buddy chartered a four-seat Beechcraft Bonanza airplane for Jennings, Alsop, and himself from Dwyer Flying Service in Mason City, Iowa. So his idea was to depart following the show 
at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake and fly to the next venue, which was North Dakota, allowing them time to rest and just avoid the, you know, the, vigor, the uh, rigorous bus journey. Immediately after the Clear Lake show, which ended just before midnight, Alsip agreed to flip a coin for the seat with Richie Valens, who was famous for La Bamba. So Valens called heads, and he won, and he reportedly said, that's the first time I've ever won anything in my life. And this is leading up to something, and you're going to, like, you know, you're going to think back on that quote. So Whaling Jennings uh, gave up his seat to J.P. Richardson, which was the big bopper, who had influenza, and he complained that the tour bus was too cold and uncomfortable for a man of his size. Was he big or was he tall or both? I just think he was big. Okay. This is a spoiler alert, okay, if you don't know. But the plane, you know, ended up crashing and unfortunately killing Buddy Holly, uh, the big bopper, and Richie Valens. And Buddy Holly was just uh, 20, 22 years old. Yep, much too soon. So that pretty much, you know, ended it. What I found odd is that his wife did not attend the funeral. And she's never visited the gravesite, you know, because hmm. she blames, uh, in a way, blame, blames herself. Right. So I'm actually tearing up here. <laughs> We're going to talk about Buddy's guitars. Uh, he bought his first Fender Stratocaster, uh, which became his signature guitar at Harold Music in Lubbock for $249, which I know is, you know, worth a lot more now. <laughs> And that was his 1954 Stratocaster, which was stolen during a tour in his stop in Michigan in 1957. And we're, I'm going to talk a little bit about that guitar in, in a minute. Uh, to replace it, he purchased a 1957 model before a show in Detroit. And he owned four or five Stratocasters during his career. The 1954 guitar, there's a little bit of controversy with um, if it was found or not. <laughs> The 1954 guitar, there's actually a documentary, you can find this on YouTube, called The 54, and this is from an article from May 2019 from guitar.com. It says, the mythical 1954 Fender Stratocaster may have been discovered down under. In Australia? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it says it was found down under, but I think this guy... As far as I know, this, this guy is from Australia, but the guitar was found in Lubbock, yeah, Texas. That would make sense. Yeah. So the guy's name is Gil Matthews. He's a drummer, producer, and he's a Fender collector. He purchased this two decades after the plane crash. And cross-examination by experts point to a high probability that the guitar in Matthews' possession is indeed... Buddy Holly's Stratocaster. But then if you go on YouTube, uh, you'll see comments that, and uh, other articles that claim that it's not. But there are pictures. Buddy Holly was pretty hard on this guitar. So the pickups are cracked. Mm -hmm. Like there's pieces missing. And if you look at the pictures of this guy's guitar he found or bought, it matches. I mean, to me, I'm not an expert on guitars. So otherwise, where is this guitar? You know, what happened to it? Right. Because <laughs> they didn't, uh, you know, as far as I know, guitars didn't have, you know, numbers on them, serial numbers. 
you know, like a car. Or legs to get yeah. up and run away. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go through Buddy Holly's guitars. He had a harmony. His first guitar was a Harmony Stratotone. And I looked this up. It's a company in Chicago. And they, were, they existed in the 50s and 60s, so they're no longer around. So I'm sure those guitars are worth a lot of money. What I like is that he, Buddy Holly owned a Martin guitar. Yep. It was a D18. And I guess Buddy, when Buddy borrowed, when he played, when he opened for Elvis in 1956, he borrowed Elvis's guitar. And Elvis was playing a D18. So I guess Buddy liked, loved that guitar. And then he, of course, the 54 Stratocaster he owned. Uh, he had a Gibson Les Paul gold top. This is the first documented electric guitar Buddy Holly owned. He also owned a Gibson J200 and a Gibson J45. And this was probably the most popular acoustic that Buddy owned. He created a leather cover for it. Hmm. And he composed a lot of songs on this guitar. So the leather cover included his name on the face of the guitar. And it has the songs from his first Decca single, Blue Days, Black Nights, and Love Me, on opposing sides of the top and body by the neck, as well as having Texas spelled out along the bottom portion of the guitar. Now, this guitar, I don't know if he still owns it, but Gary Busey <laughs> owned this guitar. In 1990, get this, he paid $242,000 for the guitar. Wow. And he said it was most of the money that he made from the movie, the Buddy Holly story. Okay. And I also found, believe it or not, video, of course, on YouTube. It's from 1991 when Gary Busey was on Arsenio Hall. He has the guitar with him. Mm -hmm. And he's playing the guitar. And of course, it's a strange interview. You know? <laughs> Gary okay. Busey, never. Yeah. You know, I met Gary, the <laughs> infamous uh, Cherry Hill show. Yeah. I got him to sign my Buddy Holly story poster, but we can't talk about Gary anymore. No. So then the other guitar was a 1958 Fender. And this was the last guitar that Buddy Holly played, his last show. The legendary singer Dion was asked to safeguard this guitar on the bus the day, you know, when, the, when they took the plane and the plane crashed. And I think this guitar might be in a museum. I know there's a museum in Lubbock. Not sure where this guitar is. Okay. But it was fairly new guitar because it was 1959 when Buddy Holly died. And this is a 58. Right. Next, I want to talk about Buddy Holly's famous glasses. You would think that Buddy Holly would be buried, you know, wearing his glasses, but because of the plane crash, they didn't retrieve all the items right away. Right. What's weird is <clears throat> when the plane crashed, weren't they somehow ejected from the plane? Yeah, they were ejected. So it's not like everything was still just inside the plane to easily recover. After 21 years after he passed away, his glasses were found in a basement filing cabinet huh. in Iowa. Now, what happened was on April 7th, 1959, now there was snow when the plane crashed. So when the snow melted, the farmer who owned the field started um, working the ground of the field. Once he started, he discovered some items left from the plane crash. Uh, it was a cigarette lighter a watch, 
engraved with the Big Bopper's initials, and Buddy Holly's glasses. He promptly called in the authorities to retrieve the items, and all of them were placed in an envelope that was marked Charles Hardin Holly, uh, received April 7, 1959, and filed away in a drawer. Nobody ever retrieved them. <laughs> and then in 1980, February 29th, Ciro Gordo County Sheriff Jerry Allen, he was rummaging through some old filing cabinets in the basement, and you can see where this is going, county courthouse, when he came upon an envelope with a familiar name written on it, and inside the envelope were the glasses. After the plane crash, the personal effects that were found were returned to the family of the victims, and Sheriff Allen planned to do the same with Buddy Holly's glasses. Uh, he reached out to Buddy Holly's parents, Buddy Holly's widow, Maria Elena. She claimed ownership of them. Uh, the case went to court. Uh, the judge ruled in favor of her, and she held on to the glasses for a number of years and then sold them in 1998 for $80,000. And she sold them to the organization that built the Lubbock Buddy Holly Center. And the glasses are on display today. Very cool. Yep. And by the way, Maria Elena is still alive. I figured that just by the way you were kind of speaking of her. Yeah. She remarried. Because you said something about to this day, she still hasn't yeah. visited his grave. She remarried and she has a couple kids. In fact, Pat Denizio, like I said, such a fan of Buddy Holly. There's a smithereen song called Maria Elena, which is a great song. There is a Buddy Holly Center if you want to go visit it. It's in Lubbock. In 1980, a guy by the name of Grant Speed <laughs> sculpted a statue of Holly playing his Fender. Other memorials include, uh, there's a street named in his honor, and then the Buddy Holly Center contains a museum of Holly memorabilia and fine arts. And the center is located on Crickets Avenue and one street east of Buddy Holly Avenue. Groundbreaking was held April 20th, 2017 for the construction of a new performing arts center in Lubbock, the Buddy Holly Hall of Performing Arts and Sciences. And it's a downtown $153 million project. And it says expected to be completed in 2020. But I figure because of COVID, <laughs> maybe they're still working on it. So Buddy Holly had um, influence on the Beatles. John Lennon and Paul McCartney, they saw Buddy Holly for the first time when he first appeared at the London Palladium. It says they studied Buddy Holly's records, uh, learned his performance style and lyricism, and based their act around his persona in the beginning, the Beatles. They also chose their name, I don't know if this is true, because of the crickets, they chose the name the Beatles. Oh, that, okay, yeah. that's interesting. And Paul McCartney owns... Buddy Holly's catalog of songs. Now, Bob Dylan, believe it or not, on January 31st, 1959, two nights before Buddy Holly's death, Bob Dylan was 17 years old, and he attended a performance in Duluth at 17, hmm. Bob Dylan song. Uh, Mick Jagger saw Buddy Holly uh, performing in Woolwich, London, during a tour of England. So there's, there's been some films about Buddy Holly. Most notably, uh, the Buddy Holly story is 1978. And, of course, Gary Busey played Buddy Holly. Mm -hmm. uh, Gary uh, sang the songs. 
he played the songs in the movie. Oh, wow. Cool. And like I said, I just watched it. I just got the DVD. But the film was widely criticized by Buddy Holly's friends and family for its inaccuracies. Paul McCartney, because of this film, I guess he didn't like it either. It led him to produce and host his own documentary about Buddy Holly in 1985, titled The Real Buddy Holly Story. And it includes interviews with Keith Richards, uh, Phil and Don Everly, Sonny Curtis, Jerry Allison, some people in Buddy Holly's bands, Buddy Holly's family, and Paul McCartney, among others. I don't know if that, where that's available. And of course, in 1987, Marshall Crenshaw portrayed Buddy Holly in the movie La Bamba. There's a documentary, Buddy Holly Rave On, and it aired on BBC in 2017. So those are films that you can check out. And then there's some books. <laughs> uh, we got Rave On by Philip Norman from 2014. That's 352 pages. Buddy Holly, A Life from Beginning to End. Now, these, these two I'm going to mention are very short books if you don't have much time to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is by a, a company called Hourly History, and they've put out tons of books on musicians. I guess they're short reads just to get just what you need to know. Yeah. 45 pages. Oh, there you go. <laughs> There's another one, Cold Days, Hot Nights. It's about Buddy Holly and the Crickets British Tour. I'm going to actually get this because it, it's 62 pages, but that sounds interesting. Um, and then there was a real person named Peggy Sue. Yes. Uh, so she wrote a book. Her name is Peggy Sue Jaron, G-E-R-R-O-N. This book was from 2015, 344 pages. Whatever Happened to Peggy Sue? A rock and roll memoir. We got Buddy Holly, Learning the Game by Spencer Lee in 2019. So that's a pretty recent book, 434 pages. These are the earliest ones. And believe it or not, they both have the same name. <laughs> the Buddy Holly Story by John Tobler from 1979. Okay. And then there's another one, The Buddy Holly Story, by John Gold, Goldrose, Goldrosen, 1979, like I said. Uh, and Rolling Stone said this is the best rock biography ever. But, wow. maybe, but that was probably from 1979. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and those you can find, even though they're that old and they're, they're out of print, uh, you go on eBay, they're pretty reasonable. And now I have, these are albums. And of course we have the Chirping Crickets. Uh, they reissued this a couple, I don't know how many years ago, but I have the reissue on vinyl, 1957. And then we got Buddy Holly self-titled, 1958. And then that'll be the day, 1958. So we put out two albums in one year. Yeah. This one is amazing. And it's on, if you have a streaming service, because if you go to buy this, it's $275. Yeah. On CD. It's not fade away. I don't know if you check check this out. I'm gonna No, I didn't. It's the complete studio recordings and more. It's two hundred and three songs. It's every song Buddy Holly recorded. You showed me the set. Yeah. The first song is called My Two Time and Woman. It was written by Buddy Holly at age twelve. Wow. And 
his voice has not changed at that point, <laughs> right? Yep. It's sort of a Peter Brady or because he sound he sounds like a girl, but it's a it's not great quality because I don't know what he recorded it on, right? But twelve year old Buddy Holly, and I'm pretty sure the next song or the song after is him when he was fifteen. And then there's songs by him and that Bob Mon- Montgomery. Right. And they're country. They're like what he started out doing. Okay. And then you get into the, all the other stuff. There's songs on there I've never heard before. Maybe there were B-sides or something. Now there's a compilation or a tribute, uh, Rave On, Buddy Holly, right. uh, on Fantasy Records, 2011. The thing is, most of the songs I liked, except Paul McCartney. And you got to hear the song. He does It's So Easy. He, sound, he's, he doesn't sound like uh, Mellow Paul. He sounds like he's constipated. <laughs> and he's yelling in the middle of the song how it's so easy. He's just scatting. Mm-hmm. It's, it, I think it's awful. And then there's Great Tragedy, Winter Dance Party 1959. And I like this one because it's everybody, I guess, that had done that tour. And it's the original recordings. So you'll hear the big bopper. Pretty sure you hear Wailing Jennings. You know, different people that were on that tour. Right. Now, when I look this up, don't confuse this. There's another album by the same name. It's called also Winter Dance Party by the Space Shits. Space Shits? <laughs> it's a punk band. Okay. And the cover of the album is similar to the original the original tour poster. You might get confused if you look up Winter Dance Party. Like, <laughs> what the hell? This isn't Buddy Holly. Right. And then there's also a ton of other albums and greatest hits. And I'm sure there's hundreds that you can find. Now, lastly, believe it or not, I came up with a top 10 list of cover songs, Buddy Holly cover songs. And these are in no particular order. Pat Denizio put out, I think it was called... Buddy Holly, Pat Denizia, something like back, like slash Pat, Pat Denizia. Okay. All Buddy Holly songs. Yep. Pat hired a guy that worked with the Four Seasons to do strings. I, I mean, there's other people on there. He's got a string section on some of the songs. Mm-hmm. But my favorite is Learning the Game that Pat does. Now, this next one, I've liked this since I heard it. I can't, I don't know when I first heard of Buddy Holly. It might have been might have been Linda Ronstadt doing a Buddy Holly. Maybe I didn't know it was Buddy Holly. But anyway, The Knack. Oh, yeah. Heartbeat. Maybe I didn't even know it was a Buddy Holly song at the time. I don't know. When that album came out. I love The Knack. Raining in My Heart by Leah Sayer. I like that one. I like that song. There's a woman by the name of Skeeter Davis. Oh, boy. So her version is pretty good. I can't tell you what albums these are on, but I just came up with these. Ricky Nelson. Not Rick Nelson, but Ricky Nelson. (laughs) Uh, True Love Ways. And he recorded this song four days before his plane crash. Oh, man. Yeah. So try not to record Buddy Holly's song and then go on a plane. Yeah. Advice there. Uh, We got... Marshall Crenshaw, Crying, Waiting, Hoping. Mm-hmm. And that is from La Bamba when he performed that song. Uh, it's So Easy, Linda Ronstadt. That'll Be the Day by the Everly Brothers. And then John Lennon, he had an album, I think it was called Rock and Roll. And he does Peggy Sue. 
and he sounds really close to Buddy Holly on the song, and it's he doesn't sway too far from the original. You know, some people take it a different direction, and it doesn't sound good, but just a great rendition of that song. And then last of all is Rave On by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. <laughs> <laughs> so those are my, I think I, there were 10 there, cover yeah. songs. I was surprised, you know, you told me we were doing this episode and there was a lot of, you know, topics to cover. But I started listening to Buddy Holly just to try and know better what we were going to be talking about. And I was blown away at how many songs I had already known mm-hmm. without realizing who had, you know, who had written them or who had performed them. I think out of the I just had a Buddy Holly playlist on an Apple music Mm -hmm. and i want to say the first 20 songs that played i knew in some way shape or form yeah and then other songs that i listened to i could visualize or hear those guitar riffs in other music or you know what was utilized from buddy holly's music Mm -hmm. later in the 60s 70s 80s so that to me was something that was interesting and something i picked up on as i was you know going back and listening to the music yeah i think he had a great influence i mean it was 1959 so you know rock and roll was just beginning yep i think it's amazing that he wrote that many songs you know you always think of what he could have accomplished mm-hmm. or who he who he might have recorded with you don't know he could have um say he didn't go on that tour and he started a family he could have been took 10 years off he could oh have, yeah he could have said i'm not doing this anymore became a realtor <laughs> we don't know it's one of the great what if stories yeah because people always think he would have continued as a musician but we don't know so thanks for listening again and uh, you'll hear us again soon you've been listening to no good music intro and exit music by the band 99% today's show is produced and edited by Rob J. Lilly and recorded at the did you say 7 studios in Washington New Jersey You can find No Good Music on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Pandora, and almost anywhere you listen to podcasts.